This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. What's your Alan Cumming touchstone? Did you first fall for the Wayfish Scott and Romeo Michelle's high school reunion? Since this is the last night of school and all, would you care to dance with me once? No. Or was it his romantic hijinks in Emma that hooked you? Who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? Maybe you're more of a Goldeneye Bond Boy fan. I am invincible! Spy kids? Get the cunning and intelligence of the world's greatest espionage agents all rolled into tiny packages I call spy kids. The good wife? Can I say son of a bitch or is that too salty? Oh, it's gotta be cabaret. Welcome, bienvenue. Welcome. There are almost too many to count. <laughs> I'm sure there are. <laughs> Alan Cumming is a renaissance man of his own making. From theater to TV and film, he's a chameleon who melts into every role he takes on. But he doesn't stop there. He owns a club in New York, Club Cumming. I went there once. He also started his own perfume line, Cumming the Fragrance. He's an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ rights. He's also the author of a book of fiction, one memoir, and now a second memoir called Baggage. I just constantly talk about myself from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. Alan and I spoke right before his book came out. And no offense to everyone else I've interviewed, but he's just about the most charming human on the planet who really knows how to tell a good story. I did have another tattoo uh, that was on my body, but I had it removed by laser that was had a young gentleman's name on it. Yeah, I've had that. I've done that. Kitty. Never done that? Never got met someone and two weeks later had their name tattooed on your body? Oh, you haven't? Oh, I thought everyone did that. No. Were you, were you intoxicated at the time? In a way, because I, when I 
I write about this in the book. I, I call him Adonis. And I was, I feel, I, it's just this man I had a short-lived relationship with. I feel like I was the victim of a chemical attack. Do you know, like that sort of chemistry that you have with someone and the sort of, you know, the, the endorphins or whatever is released and, and you're, you find yourself doing things, you're completely out of control with desire or lust or whatever it is. And, and after two weeks of knowing each other, we decided we'd get our names tattooed on each other's groins. And I thought that was the most sensible thing I'd ever done. I really did. I thought it was completely sensible. And then four months after that, we split up and I was left with the, with the, with the name <laughs> Raven on my, on my groin. And I got, what's hilarious is I got, I got it. Um, I, went, I was in LA making a film and there was a, there was a special, uh, you know, tattoo removal place at uh, Cedar sinai Hospital. So I went and you have to go several times. It's really sore. They laser it off and you can hear this. And it's the, it's the sound of the, uh, the ink exploding in your body. Is it more painful getting it removed than to it actually is. get a tattoo? Yeah, because then also you keep, you've got to keep going back. You know, it's not just once you do it, it's several times. And it is more painful. And then also because it goes all scabby and yucky. And that's mm. sore as well. And so, but the thing was, when I went, when I eventually saw him afterwards, so about a year afterwards, I, he said, do you still have your tattoo? I said, no, I'd mine wrenched from my body by laser. And he said, I said, do you still have yours? He said, kind of. And he, he pulled down his pants and where it used to say Alan, it now says balance. <laughs> that's very clever. <laughs> yes, isn't that good? I was going to say, what could you have done with his name? A ravenous, craven. I could have taken a wee bit of the N off and been raver. I was a lot, all my friends were delighted in telling me the things that I could do. And, you know, it was ugh, yes, done, done. Oh, my friend David wanted to put done raven. That's what he was like. D U N at the beginning. But I was like, all right. I, I feel foolish enough. You don't need to do, rub it in. But instead, you got it removed. Well, yeah. let's let's talk about your memoir because it's so exciting, and I know you're tired of talking about it, but. I don't know. Let's give it, let's you, give it the old Kirk. college try. Um, <laughs> so it's called Baggage. And I feel like, Alan, you've spent a lot of time in your adult life unloading yours because this is your second memoir, of course. Yes. And and the first was really powerful about your dysfunctional relationship with your father, uh, yes. who was who was terrible. And I, I thought it was incredible that it had such an impact. And you heard from so many people who were able to to deal with or or metabolize their own dysfunctional relationships yes. with the with the parent. Yes. So so that was really the the focal point of your first memoir. And and you wanted to do another one because well, mostly because well a couple of reasons of course, but mostly because I I as a reaction to the reaction to my first one. Because I think the first one, it was, you know, I had this very violent and abusive father and I felt the way that it was, I mean, look, I, I, I was so excited ultimately by the way that it helped so many people and people keep writing me saying, I've been able to talk to my abuser, or I've talked, you know, all that stuff you just mentioned. But also there was a rhetoric which sort of said, Alan has triumphed, Alan has overcome, Alan has, con you know, Alan has conquered this terrible dark past. And I feel like that's a very American thing to sort of try and tie up things and make it all like it's done now, we're done this. Instead of just thinking, I have, you know, 
I am happy and I have a life that I, but I've not overcome it. It's still a part of me. It's always going to be a part of me. I think we're all like that. Oh, we all have baggage or trauma or shit in our lives. And we don't, the moment you ignore it and say, oh, I don't, and deny it, then it's just going to fester and come back to bite you in the bum. And actually it's, you just have to be open about it and honest. And, you know, like in, in the pandemic, I think it's been really interesting how we've all understood the value of discussing our mental health and checking in on each other's mental health. And it's, it's something we don't, we haven't done as a culture before. And so actually, I think that's all that I'm asking people to do is to not think of me as someone who has absolutely triumphed over something and killed it. I'm actually living with something and I've managed it. I've managed to make my life. And I think I just want to normalise the trauma and the, and damage that we've all got. We all carry it and not to, let's just not pretend that we can get over something. It just, you just get better at dealing with it. How do you think, I mean, obviously there's a multitude of ways, but when you think about how your abusive father, how, how that relationship continues to manifest itself and the demons that you have to continue to fight. Well, I, I get very triggered by angry men. I, I used to try and fix people who were angry. I used to have an obsession with trying to fix. I had several relationships where I was just basically trying to fix angry people. I thought it was my fault. I thought there must be something I've done. I thought there was something I could do to stop them being angry. I was seeking the familiar. And I think that, that I've, got, I've got over that, thank goodness. But I do get very triggered by, by angry, angry men. And I just, you know, it's something I just got to be vigilant about. Some people, you know, people have a right to be angry and sort of out of control, irrational anger, I find difficult. And people, I find it when people are sort of trying to bring me down, uh, I feel quite confident about myself. But when, when I'm aware that people are sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know this, if when you're well known and sort of, seen as being accomplished. Sometimes you go into scenarios and environments where people want to bring you down a peg or two and it's sort of just their way of making themselves feel better about themselves. And I find that that's very triggering for me because I want to allow them to do that. And I, but also I know it's not fair and I want to, so I, I have to, I, I really try hard to let people do their shit, but not me not be affected by it, not to make me sort of bring them down with me. So that things like that. And then also, you know, another thing that I feel uh, I talk about a bit is, is the fact that I've never had children. I, I feel that I, uh, I did have a spell when I, you know, I start the book by talking about trying to have a child with my ex-wife and how, in a way, how grateful I am that that wasn't possible. Uh, or didn't happen um, because we split up and everything. And that. And me, me, me um, thinking about being a father is what precipitated me remembering a whole lot of stuff from my childhood that I had repressed and then having a nervous breakdown. And so now I did try, I, I did think about having kids with a couple of people, other partners and, you know, and some people, you know, wanted my sperm and all that stuff. Uh, I was going to do that with an ex and all that stuff. But now I, I'm 56. I'm not going to have kids. And I, I don't, I don't want to, but in the writing of this book and thinking about it and talking about myself endlessly, <laughs> I sort of think, well, I write this thing. I say, you know, I, I have lots of young friends, people who are, could be my children, 
and I have friends of all ages, but I, I, I actually love having young friends. I think it's really great to sort of find, you know, to keep in touch with what's happening. And like my assistant's 26. I think it's great to sort of think, what's your life like now? And, you know, and, and, and it is like having, you know, obviously he's a big grown up, but I am old enough to be his dad and stuff like that. And I, but, and so in a way I have become the father I wish I'd had, but it's no accident that he is uh, childless. Are you are you sorry, Alan? That uh, whistle. I don't have kids. That, yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm not sorry. I really love my life. I don't want. Oh God, the idea of having a kid now would be a nightmare. No, but that you didn't ever. I think I'm. I'm. I wonder if part of the reason, or not part of. I wonder if the reason. I'm. I. I wonder if the reason I didn't was that I was scared I would become my father, and so you know that's how far his reach uh, still, still comes, and I. I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I have avoided something in my life that and I didn't avoid. It. I tried to. It just didn't happen. Um, but I ultimately stayed away from it because I, I, I have. It's triggering for me and it's weird. And and you know, if if when I was twenty eight and I was trying to get pregnant with my wife, that's what precipitated me having a a, a, a huge my mind completely brought all these images back and you know it did that for a reason it did that to because I had never been able to deal with them before I not I wasn't it was, I was too little and too young to process what was happening to me so it waited until I was going to go into that same sort of arena again father uh, the patriarchy I suppose and I feel that if my mind is as powerful to do that and then to, you know, make me have all those images and all those feelings and then to kind of break down, then I think it is as equally as powerful to perhaps make, persuade me not to do something just in case I wasn't fully, you know, it's that transference of, of um, the intergenerational transference of trauma is, is, a, is a thing, you know, it's a powerful thing. You can, your DNA can be changed. It's been tested your dna can be changed by the trauma that your parents have endured do you feel like and then i want to talk about this new memoir but do you feel having written about your dad in the first one that you understand maybe you don't forgive him but that you understand what were the forces that shaped him to be the the monster he sounds like he was i mean i, I sort of i think actually i do forgive him and I'm not sure I do understand all this. I mean, I, there's some, I'm not, I'm not sure. And I'll never be sure. I'll never be able to be sure. I think he had many personality disorders. I, I think he was mentally ill. Absolutely. I think he was abused by his father. Yes. And he didn't break that cycle. And of course, that's also what terrifies me or terrified me that I would not be able to stop that too. I mean, I feel I've pretty much done everything you should do or can do to break a cycle by talking about it, doing therapy, da, da, da. Uh, but who knows? Um, but in terms of the actual other stuff, the kind of, you know, I've talked to doctors and therapists and I think I have got a handle on some of the sort of, as I say, personality disorders that he had. But who knows? I don't I don't know. It's he wasn't an evil person. He was just a very damaged and 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 scared person, and actually, you know, as much as he was this big macho guy, and he kind of, he was very charismatic and very sexy, and uh, 
all that stuff as well. But he was very, I think he was scared and I think he was a coward. And I think that's, I'm not a coward. And I feel I'd really, I stood up to him and I, I, you know, did things that he would never do uh, in terms of facing demons and facing stuff. So I, I, I did like in the, I was just talking earlier actually that, you know, when you read the audiobook of your book, it's kind of yes. funny because you sometimes are reading aloud things you've only ever written down and right. like the acknowledgements bits, I like, you don't really, you just do that at the end and you don't sort of, and in the acknowledgements to, to my last memoir, Not My Father's Son, I said in the acknowledgements that I forgave my father, but I didn't ever read that aloud until I was in the studio recording the audiobook and I just lost it, you know, completely was weeping. So I do forgive him because I think I don't want to carry around this shit. You know, I, I forgive him for me. You know, I forgive you. You did it. It happened. Let, let, I'm moving on. I'm not going to. I feel like not forgiving means you're keeping the trauma with you. So I feel it's it's mine to give away forgiveness. So I did. Talk about how this this memoir, because it, it is a really interesting mix. You have hilarious anecdotes yes. about everyone from Faye Dunaway, Liza Minnelli, Gore Vidal, and yet it also interweaves sort of more serious topics. How did you how did you approach this memoir when you thought, I'm gonna write a second memoir and this this is my goal, this is what I wanna do? Well, it took me a long time because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do actually when I started it. I thought it was maybe going to be about me coming to America and having this new life at age 30, you know, because I hadn't been to America at all until I was 30. And so I had a whole other perspective. Um, but I think I sort of, over the years <laughs> that it took, I, 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 you know, I think it takes you a while, unless you're writing a story and the story has an ending and you know what, and you plot it out, you know, in a fiction. My story's not ended. And so I wanted, I had to find out where, what the plot was, what the, and I've done it, you know, between two marriages, between my end of my first marriage and the beginning of my second. And I wanted to sort of say, I mean, basically I want to say that thing about, don't think I'm all finished and complete and conquered. Here's me being a bit of a hot mess a lot of the time in my life, having a great time, having a laugh, having, you know, doing all that, but concurrently with all that also, suffering and being a bit of making some bad decisions. And I think that's what I want to do. I want to kind of normalize uh, being a hot mess. You know, I think <laughs> I think it's entirely possible to have a great successful life and also be have moments when you're just a hot mess. So that's my ambition is to normalize hot messness. We'll be right back. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I know that you didn't really talk at all about your your sexuality and I know you know and and that was quite intentional it seems to me even you have reached queer icon status um <laughs> you well you don't don't really talk about dealing with I I should rephrase no. that you don't yeah, talk no. about dealing with coming out or or you know I no. know that you you talk about uh the fluidity of partnerships you talk about flings with men and women and I know that that you feel that that whole conversation really needs to be reframed in the culture. I think I, I really do. I mean, I didn't, I left all that out on purpose. I even felt in my last memoir, you know, they wanted me to do a sort of, a, when did you know all that sort of stuff? And I said, um, and also about, you know, a bit, a, a thing about Grant, my husband and stuff like that. And I said, you wouldn't ask me to do this if I was straight. You wouldn't say, when did I know I was straight? You know, nobody asks, gets asked that. <laughs> and you don't even ask someone who's writing a memoir to talk about the, about about your partner in the way that I'm, you're wanting me to do that. And it didn't feel organic or authentic to me. So I said no. And 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 I feel like with this, I talk about yes, I'm with a a woman, and now I'm with a man. But that because that's just how it was. And then I was back with a woman. And I was with, you know, it, I just talk about my life as it was. I don't. I just feel I'm so bored. I mean, I, I said this the other day, like straight people don't know how lucky they are not to be constantly probed about their sexuality. And you, you never, you don't ever get asked about, you know, do you find it a problem being straight? Or do you know, do you, um, uh, and when did you know you were straight? And, you know, has your straightness, a fit, uh, you know, do you think being straight in Hollywood is, all that, <laughs> that would be so funny. Um, <laughs> That would be a good SNL skit. It would, not it? Yes. <laughs> and I, 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 so that to me is really boring. And also I think, you know, what I think is really interesting about the time we live in right now, this sort of time of non-binariness and fluidity and the, I, and the notion that I think is coming into our culture much more of that you, you, you don't have to be one or the other. You can go, you can go back and forward between gender and sexuality and everything. That's kind of something I've always sort of felt. I've always felt that I was, I would always define myself as bisexual. If people call me gay, I don't mind. Queer, I totally, I like queer actually. I think it's a good thing because it's sort of, it's an umbrella that's not just about sex, you know, it's much more sort of about uh, sensibility as well. But also I think I, I, uh, I think that 
I have this thing I say, it's kind of a joke, but I think it's true. Is that, you know, sexuality to me is like, it's grey, it's not black and white. Sexuality is like, like a vacation. You don't always want to go to the same place twice. And I think that's something that people are more able to understand now. And I don't, you know, what am I supposed to say? Like, oh, well, at school, I, you know, I had sex with this boy and then I had sex with this girl. I mean, I don't, that's not what my book's about. It's not what I want to talk about. Uh, I don't feel that that's what, that's what, uh, you know, um, I feel I have talked so much about my sexuality and been so open about it. That's my, what I have to say. That's what I have to, I, I, I'm open and I, do, I have no shame about sexuality. I think that's the biggest thing I can give to society. I just, I'm not interested in, you know, uh, when did you know and what effects it has, all that stuff. I do think it's so interesting, Alan, how how you can look back on the last 40 years. You know, when I wrote my book, I was talking about sort of some of the cluelessness I had early on in my career. I remember interviewing Matthew Shepard's parents, Judy mm. and Dennis, who yeah. I became very friendly with. Very darling, something. And they're so nice. And I know they've honored you at, yes. uh, at their foundation. And, you know, I remember I write in my book about asking the shepherds, if they were disappointed when Matthew told them they were gay, he was gay. And were they disappointed that they weren't, you know, possibly going to have any grandchildren? Or I think Dennis volunteered that. Mm -hmm. It sounds so dated now. It does, doesn't it? And just so, so so just like, what? (laughs) I suppose that's the thing that we've grown, we've changed, our culture has changed about sort of, I mean, it's actually, although it's so precarious and I, feel so scared about America, actually, and about how there's so much awful stuff bubbling under the surface, you know, that we saw during the time of Trump and could easily come back again and could be more, you know, I don't take my rights and my life in this country for granted. I think I could easily be persecuted uh, if things went slightly the other way. But I think with so much actually has changed and since, you know, and and, and then of course Matthew Shepard was a huge turning point, I think. And that was actually right when I first came to New York, 1998. That's when I was doing cabaret. I remember it. And, um, but I think those things, those, it's like, it's like, you know, stuff pre me too stuff. Right. It sounds now so like how insane could we have put up with all that? But actually what you're talking about when you said that to him, that is very much how people thought in those days. It, it's, it does, it is dated, but it's, it's not, it's not offensive or it wasn't offensive or meant from any place of offense. It's just really interesting how things in certain areas sometimes change so fast. It's emblematic. I think uh, uh, when, when you look back, you know, I'm eight years older than you are. And, you know, when I was growing up, we sort of vaguely probably knew a gym teacher was gay or somebody was gay. My French teacher, Mr. Holt, who I loved, was gay. I suspected, but it was just so not spoken about or maybe a wink, wink here and there. And then I fast forward it to 2015 when I interviewed Jim Obergefell, who was the plaintiff in the same-sex marriage case in the Supreme Court. And, you know, that was only six years ago. And that almost feels like a lifetime ago. So to me, I think all these issues that you talk about are the things that I wanted to talk about and the the really seismic sh- shift we've seen in the culture. It is. You know, yes, it's precarious, I agree. But thank God, right? Yeah, oh my God, thank yes. Thank God totally. that's, that, that, that we're having 
these these reckonings. And thank God that we have got a generation of young people who are coming up who don't think in the same way that we are, who weren't brought up in the same way that we are, who have grown up with the possibility of otherness all around them. An example, because of the internet, like they see so many different things. They have people in their classes who are transitioning or have two dads or two mo- You know, it's just, we live in a world that has changed so much. And for young people, they've always grown up with the internet. And I think that's completely changed people. If you've never not known the internet, not known that you have access to anything in the world, a couple of clicks, that is a that completely changes must change hugely how you see the world i mean also it's, i think it certainly gives you different concentration skills but it also uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> puts you in a way that in a, into a thing of you've had so many options you've had so much obviously there's room for misinformation there but i just i'm so kind of heartened by by the young right now i, I, I agree young. And I agree with you, it's a double-edged sword because for everything it's exposed and normalized, it's also created a a platform for the kinds of things we don't want. But, you know, I was thinking as we talk about the arc of history, Cabaret was a huge moment, not only for you personally, you know, you won the whole Broadway production, won a slew of awards, people were obsessed with the show and with you. And you have an interesting analysis about why and why that show was so embraced, which I think is a little bit about what we're talking about. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's because, I, you know, in writing this book, I oh, that time for me was so incredible. Coming to New York, my first job in New York, I'm starring in a Broadway school. It becomes a sensation. I win all these awards. I'm just feted everywhere. I was overwhelmed by this, this wave of love. The city kind of opens its arms to me. I have no kind of touchstone. I have nothing to compare it to. It's it's very difficult. And it was a lot happening. And I suddenly, I was 33, and I was suddenly becoming a sort of, you know, obje- sexually objectified in a way that I'd never been before. Um, my body was discussed in a way that was fascinating to me, but also really weird. I just had no, and it was out of nowhere. <laughs> but what I... You know, when I was writing this book, and also because I'm actually re- very close friends with Monica Lewinsky, and I, because when I first came to, when I, was, I remember being in rehearsals for Cabaret in my little flat in the West Village, and turning on, you know, turning on the TV, and all these rumblings about something big happening in Washington, and that the the president was having an affair, and I remember just thinking, what's what the hell's wrong with these people? That why was this such big news, and what's going on? And you know, so over that time when I was doing cabaret and becoming this s- sort of saucy, sexy, sensational thing, uh, the 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 kind of real life of America was about looking at this um, sort of uh, forbidden relationship to an older man and younger woman, and getting gratuitous details of their sex and being sh- putting shame and scorn on it and you know like we all know that monica had this the first person in the world to be sort of shamed by the internet on a global scale and i just think it's really interesting that in that year she had all that a woman a young woman was so ashamed about her sexuality and i and me in this role being 
like a you know almost like a sexual deviant was what how I was described being absolutely lauded and and praised and just everyone thought I was just great and I think in a funny sort of way it's because people were we were escapism we were it was all this shame and stuff heaped onto sexuality and people having to sort of tell their kids what a blowjob was and all this stuff people being furious about that and then actually here in another way is oh look we can just we can pretend it's all not happening and look at this young skinny European boy plastered across buses and uh, being all naughty I, I, I do think there was a connection but that's why in a way the production was so successful at that time you, I'm fascinated by your friendship with Monica. You know, I know her dad, Bernie, oh, uh, who's a radiologist. Yeah, because during that whole thing, uh, we needed to get to know some of the people who were involved in that story. I wasn't, mm. I wasn't super enmeshed in it because this was right around the time my husband died, and I was sort uh. of, kind of just holding on for dear life, but. But it's so interesting to me, so important and still so challenging for people to reconceive, if that even is a word, what Monica Lewinsky was and, and how she was treated in the culture. And I was just reading an article in Slate about how Maureen Dowd, who you know oh. I'm friendly with, but she how was she vile to her, vile, yeah. vile, and brutal, and Whole culture we're having, was, yeah. yeah, and we're we're really, I think, coming to terms, or you know, many people are coming to terms with how she was vilified and portrayed, and you know how feminists turned their backs on her. Yes, and, yes, um, and I'm curious. I would love to know if you feel like it's not um, betraying any confidence. I. Uh, sort of how you got to know Monica and what you've what you've learned from her and 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 what your impressions are because I know you're very good friends. Are very good friends. Yeah, I love her. We met at a party in 2000. Uh, I'd written an article for Marie Claire magazine, and uh, Glenda Bailey was the editor then, and and she um, and had a party for me, and 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 she invited Monica because Monica had. They'd done something about Monica in the previous issue or something. So that's how we met. And we went to this dinner afterwards. And I have a, I have a picture of, of that night, actually, of the of us meeting, you know, because there was paparazzi there. And then we went to dinner and it was just incredible. There was people leaning over the banquet trying to touch Monica's hair. And it was it was just incredible. And I was just sitting, getting to know this really lovely girl. I incredible, knew. incredible, like weird, super weird. Super weird stuff going on, like leaving the restaurant. And I spoke to her recently about this and she, and she said, I, I just don't remember that. And she because I blocked out so much, you know, and I understand that from being, you know, having had repressed memories with my dad. I leaving the restaurant with her, it was like a mob scene. And I was just I immediately felt so protective of her. And I. Yeah, I really feel it came from, I just, I just, we got, we hit it off. We had a really, we had nice chats. And then I just, I helped her get home. And I just was like, wow, she's got, and then I read, uh, then I read the book, um, the book that, um, what's his name wrote? The man who wrote the Diana book as well. You know that one. Um, Andrew Morton. Yes. I read that book and I was just, I, you know, I'd obviously known what, what the sort of headlines were and watched things on television, but hearing it from her point of view, I was like, what? the hell and so then then we just stayed friends 
And I went, you know, it went through various stages of when she, the first couple of years we were friends, she kind of would come out to things and then she kind of hid, hid away. Then she went to London and did her uh, course in psychology. And then she, then she, then she kind of hid and kept her head down and tried to figure out what to do with her life. And she knew that, you know, it was, she was on a hiding to nothing. Whatever she did, it was always going to come back to that. And, oh, she should, she, you know, if she tried to do anything with her life, then it was like, oh, she was using all that as a stepping stone. And it was just a mess. And then she, I think she just waited and got better. You know, so she was going through a lot of stuff herself. She was trying to deal with the fact that she had been shamed and abused. Violated. And violated in this incredible, unlike anyone else in history, actually. And so that's why when I think about her, I think she is a remarkable person to have gone through everything she's gone through and to come out of it so kind and well-balanced. It's a miracle. You know, she is, it shows what an incredible person and the sort of strength of her character and her upbringing and her values. Cause she, uh, you know, I, it's, it's inconceivable I, to, to think what, it just, it's in, you know, some of the things I've experienced with her early on, the way people reacted to her. And so for that to be your life every single day, and then to be so wronged in such a public way. And also to see the person who betrayed you, denied you. I mean, I guess it was Linda Tripp who ultimately betrayed her, but for the president to say on television that she was lying, uh, to see him kind of be, uh, you know, for his reputation to be restored and to be like, oh, what a great guy. Very, that, qui- think, very quickly, really. Very quickly. To have that all happen, I think that must have been a, such a, you know, total mindfuck and that must be I, I and also to have been in love to have been in love you're young you're in your early 20s you're in love and you get abs- you get that happens to you How? what does that do to how you think about relationships and your possibility of you know I mean it's just so to have for her to have been so eloquent and elegant in the way that she's come back and talked about it given her blessing to this TV show talk about to use her platform for other people who are internet shamed and, and, you know, bullied online and everything. It's just, I, I just, I think she's an incredible person. And, and also, you know, also hilarious. One of the funniest people that I know and just and kind and love. And she's, you know, my, she was at my wedding. She knows my mom, you know, my family all love her. She, my mom had this friend called Jack, who was a sort of partner and, he he died sadly, but he he once said, and Monica loves this. I I, I said he said, you know, you should tell uh, of all the famous people I've met with you, Alan, not Tina Turner. It's Monica who's my favourite one. Like that, <laughs> I love Tina Turner gets pushed to the curb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just you know I I would you know you cannot only imagine the trauma that she went through. And also, I think, you know, this TV show that's on right now, the impeachment, and it's very interesting because it tells it from the point of view of the woman. It's mostly about, you know, obviously Monica's a big, huge character in it, but it's mostly about Linda Tripp. Uh, and about, it's, I, I think what's really interesting, you see how all these women are manipulated into behaving the way they did and tricked and, you know, and it's so sad. What? Nothing. What's wrong? Is he not able to bring you back? It's not happening. Oh, Monica. 
to wait this long and he doesn't have the power to bring you back. He does have the power. Well, then what's the problem? Linda, he's the president. We had an affair. It's over. I think right now it's a very triggering time for Monica. She, of course, it's... Yes, of course. Reliving the most traumatic time of her life and having the rest of the world see it and it's being worrying the last time they saw it, they judged her in a very different way. It's a very... It's a, you know, she's... I think she's having a tough time right now uh, just because of all that. But I keep saying to her, you must understand that it's it is such a positive thing for you. The way that we... Everyone is so sort of both ashamed at how they bought into the whole thing 20 years ago and also so proud of you for coming back and dealing with that and te- doing it face on and making sure that other people benefit from the retelling of what happened to you. She, she, I mean, it's it's amazing. She's, you know, she's in the process of reclaiming her narrative, but she's yeah. still... She's coming out the other side, yeah, right? She is. And that's an she uncomfortable is, but, place. But it's a difficult. It's so difficult. We'll be right back. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Do you find writing, obviously you like to write, mm-hmm. um, it's fun for you. Have you always sort of been drawn to the written word that way? and um, Or is this kind of something that happened later in life? Well, I used to write, um, you know, I, I started off, I did a stand-up thing with a friend at college and we wrote all our own material and we wrote sort of loads of stuff, actually. We, were, we went from being sort of like, you know, drunk students making things up at college into sort of national treasures in Scotland and we had our own TV shows and everything and we wrote all that and then 
I wrote more, more. I wrote more performative things. I wrote a sitcom in Britain and stuff like that. And then, and then you know, it's, so in terms of the writing I do now, which is much more booky, that's. I, I wrote a novel that came out in two thousand and two, and I think I want to get back to that. Actually, I think the next thing I want. To, I actually really enjoyed finishing off this book during the pandemic. I'd been working on it for a few years, but getting the chance to actually really sit down and do it every day and think about it and work out what, you know. And you not have, that, have too many distractions, right? Exactly, exactly. Not fit it into 15 other things in a day. So I, I, I really, I sort of think now I'd like to go try and, you know, if I do a book, if I write a next book, I think I'd like it to be a novel and I think I'd like to try and really take the time off to do it and not just try and fit it into between films, although next year's looking a bit busy. <laughs> Which is busy. good, yes? Good. Yes, it's good, yes, it's good. But it's also, I'm doing a thing that's completely nuts, I'm in it, which just takes me out for like four months next year. I'm going to do a solo dance piece in, uh, <laughs> in uh, it starts off at the Edinburgh Festival and then, you know, it's a tour and then comes to the Joyce Theatre in New York. And I'm, it, I mean, I love it because it's sort of the fact, my, my, my Stage, you know, cabaret show I'm doing right now. One of them is called uh, Alan Cumming is not acting his age. And that's totally what I'm doing in this thing. But it's, and it's, I love the fact that I'm, I'll be 57 and I'll be, I've been doing a dance, but I'm not a dancer, but I'm just, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm able to, I'm allowed to, I'm working with great people. I'm going to give it my best shot. I think that thing of sometimes, you know, daring yourself to challenging yourself to do something that you might fail at is actually for me, a really important part of how I live. I, I every now and every few years, I see a pattern. I do something like that. that do I think something I'm, that scares you. Scares me like up the wazoo. Like even <laughs> like right, you know, physically, I might not be able to do this. I'm I'm nearly sixty, and that I'm going to do a dance piece, a solo dance piece. It's not even other people around that I can sort of you know, they can do a bit whilst I catch my breath. Uh, we're going to have video and things as well. But anyway, that I think is really exciting. I'm really excited by that. But it takes me away for many months. And I, it's sort of, I'm, I'm, miss, I'm missing the idea of being in my place in the Catskills and, you know, just going downstairs in my pyjamas and writing. It would be great. Have you ever thought, you know, as I've read more memoirs, I've thought about like Billy Crystal's uh, one-man show that he did, kind of tracing his his life on was Broadway. Was that about the Sundays, something Sundays? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, that was great. Yeah. And and it seems to me, Alan, your life would really lend itself to something like that. Would that ever interest you? Well, I mean, I sort of feel that's what my cabaret shows are like. The one, like I, I do these shows, I mean, I sing songs, I tell stories, and they've got, they've got a theme, like the last one was called Legal Immigrant. It was about me being you know, becoming a citizen of America. This one's called Alan Cummings Not Acting His Age. That's about aging and stuff. And the one before that was called Alan Cummings Sings Sappy Songs. And I, <laughs> I, I talked a bit about my dad and stuff and that. So I, I kind of think I do that. And I really like that. Oops. I really like that sort of connection you get with an audience when it's you, not a character. You know, you're. it's really you talking. And I sing as myself and I sing in my own Scottish accent as well. And I really enjoy that. But I... I don't know. I, you know, some <laughs> after it's not my father's son came out, people said, okay, we're, you know, my agents at the time were like, okay, what about the film rights? I was like, what do you mean? Because we've got, I said, what? We're not going to sell the film rights of my 
traumatic childhood. I don't. I think writing the book's fine. <laughs> I do. I think you know. Choose your medium. Well, I love talking to you, and I I could just talk to you all day because it's um, lovely to talk to first you. First of all, I love your accent, and I just I love <laughs> what I love what you're saying. But your new book is called Baggage. I think people are going to love it, and. They already love you. Well, most people. You can't. <laughs> right, yeah. ba- you listen, Alan. You can't ba- bat a thousand. I mean, we live in this crazy world, and totally. I think I don't like t- everybody. I don't expect everyone to like me. I expect I love everyone that. to respect I, me, though. Yeah, I saw that on Instagram. Why should everyone like you when you don't like everyone? Yeah, fair enough. You know. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, like, let's not shit on people right you may yeah. not like people but you don't have to be so aggressive it's like it, rpg is right? like you know i'm not asking for just whatever but just take your boot off my neck yeah <laughs> i love that exactly yeah exactly anyway thank you alan so lovely good luck with your great book to too. see you thank you good luck with yours but not as much luck as mine <laughs> bless you for that magnanimous <laughs> finish i just love him don't you By the way, Alan Cummings' memoir, his second, is called Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life. Nice title, right? Go check it out, everyone. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at katiecouric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.